This is the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. I'm your host, Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I'll be updating you on campus and local news. Then, KCSU Assistant Sports Director Jonathan Gillum will give us a sports update. Then we'll be hearing from a student media alumni who witnessed the Old Main Fire. I'll be delivering some national news, and Ivy will update us on the strange things happening in the world. To conclude the show, Coda will be giving some updates on COVID-19. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and again you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Uh, Starting off with campus news, according to Tony Pfeiffer at CSU Source, all of the structures on CSU's mountain campus were protected from the Cameron Peak Fire thanks to the efforts of the fire crews. The Cameron Peak Fire, the largest in state history now at 200,000 acres, roared through the mountain campus area of Pingree Park on October 9th through 10th, burning much of the forest that surround the area. However, fire crews who were assisted by fire mitigation measures put into place in recent years and in the weeks since the fire first ignited in early August managed to protect all of the structures on the 16,000-acre campus. John Hayes, dean of the Warner College of Natural Resources, said of the efforts, quote, I'm thankful of every moment of every day these last few weeks as the fire moved closer to the mountain campus for the work of these fire crews. What a challenging environment it has to be up there with the wind, the heat, and dry conditions and the thousands of dead trees due to the mountain pine beetle. I am so deeply thankful for those crews and have been thinking, what can we possibly do to express our thanks to them? End quote. While the campus survived the weekend, the fire continues to burn and threaten other structures in the area. Crews remain active in the area, providing point and structure protection on campus at nearby Sky Ranch Lutheran Camp and other homes and ranches. According to CSU Source, CSU Fort Collins, CSU Pueblo, and CSU Global are working with the Colorado State University system to launch an initiative called Your Voice, Your Vote, Your Rights. The goals of the initiative are to, quote, Encourage civic engagement, voting, and informed discourse in advance of the 2020 election and to reinvigorate the understanding that higher education has a unique and important role to play in leading difficult and contentious conversations around critical societal issues, end quote. Your voice, your vote, your rights includes a website with information, essays, and resources around free speech, voting, and how to have conversations about complex ideas. According to the press release, CSU, quote, hopes that through this initiative, readers can find their way to navigate through these contentious times with respect for each other and a commitment to making positive change, end quote. To find out more information, you can visit csusystem.edu slash free dash speech. Moving on to local news, according to Aaron Udell at the Coloradoan, Colorado is bracing for, quote, what could be very well the largest national wave of coronavirus, end quote, as stated by... Governor Jared Polis during a virus update Tuesday afternoon. Polis said that hospitalizations for COVID-19 are on the rise, with 417 hospitalizations for the virus recorded across Colorado as of Tuesday. By Wednesday, the number had risen to 435. If nothing changes, the state's top epidemiologist warned that the state could exceed its spring peak of roughly 900 COVID-19 hospitalizations by next month. Thanksgiving gatherings could create additional hurdles, like summer holidays did, in preventing spikes in COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. Citing the need for more stringent mask wearing and social distancing, Polis unveiled the state's new public health campaign, Step Up Colorado. 
The campaign urges Coloradoans to continue following public health guidelines. Polis continued to urge the use of masks and strong social distancing. He noted that in surveys, one of the most common reasons Coloradans gave for not social distancing property was their lack of symptoms. But COVID-19 can be spread by someone before they present symptoms, or even if they are asymptomatic, Polis repeated. Polis also urge only to socialize with members of one another's household if they do decide to socialize outside their homes. We are bra- uh, bracing ourselves what could be very well the largest wave in national, corona- uh, national wave of coronavirus. We don't want Colorado to becoming a low-performing state. We want it to exceed and do better, end quote. According to Jesse Paul, the Colorado Sun, Governor Jared Polis has banned evictions for tenants who can prove their hardship is due to COVID-19. Governor Jared Polis on Wednesday issued an executive order banning Colorado landlords from evicting tenants who can prove financial hardship because of the coronavirus crisis. The order, which lasts at least 30 days, comes after Polis faced months of pressure from housing advocates to protect renters from losing their homes during the pandemic. Polis formed a special eviction prevention task force, which recommended they enact the eviction ban. In order to meet the financial hardship threshold, renters must prove that they are attempting to gain government assistance for rent and housing, that they either expect to make no more than $99,000 in annual income for calendar year 2020, or more than $198,000 if they are filing a joint tax return, were not required to report any income in 2019 to the uh, Internal Revenue Service, and or received an economic impact payment under the the Federal CARES Act. They also have to prove that they are unable to pay full rent or make a housing statement due to a substantial loss of household income, loss of compensable hours of work or wages, were laid off, and or are facing extraordinary out-of-pocket medical expenses. They also have to prove that they are making an effort to make timely partial payments as close to the full payment as possible. And finally, they have to prove that they are unable to find other housing and would likely be rendered homeless or forced into move into and live in close quarters in a new congregate or shared living setting if evicted. According to Eric Larson and Kevin Duggan at the Coloradoan, the Cameron Peak Fire has reached over 200,000 acres, is at 51% containment as of Wednesday, making it Colorado's largest recorded wildfire in history. An estimated 30 to 50 structures were burned last week as the Cameron Peak Fire made an aggressive southeast push in the mountains west of Fort Collins and Loveland. Larimer County Sheriff Justin Smith called that figure a rough estimate during Monday night's video briefing, adding the damage occurred in Redstone Canyon and along Otter Road. Smith said 10 or fewer structures were burned in the Buckhorn area, and less than half a dozen were burned in the Poudre Springs area. Additionally, limited numbers of structures were burned near Glen Haven, the retreat in Storm Mountain area, he said. Prior to last week's run, 100 structures had been damaged or destroyed. Paul Del- Del Mercio, the fire's operations section chief, said in a Tuesday morning video update that there was a heavy aerial presence flying sun up to sundown on the southern edge of the fire in Glenhaven and Storm Mountain area to keep the fire from advancing south Monday. Air support totaled more than 60 hours of flight time Monday. That include the use of very large air tankers, or VLATs, 747 airplanes that can drop more than 10,000 gallons of retardant at one time on the fire. Helicopters also worked on active fire that uh, on the active fire that burned into the Redstone Canyon neighbor uh, Redstone Canyon neighborhood, and crews were working to try and build additional lines around that area to contain it. 
Del Mercio said there was no problems elsewhere with the fire. A spokeswoman from the American Red Cross of Colorado said they have 169 responders working virtually and person in a combined effort to aid people impacted by the Cameron Peak and Mullen fires. They're providing temporary housing to 13,000 evacuees and 570 rooms spread across 16 hotels, in addition to three KOA sites. The Red Cross has served 18,000 meals and snacks to evacuees. To assist the Red Cross disaster relief efforts, you can visit redcross.org. And that's all. That's the campus and local news for today. All right, now we're going to go on a quick break. There is nothing to listen to. Hold up. What time is it? It's almost 5. Quick, put it on 90.5. It's almost time for the 3.0 radio show. What's that? It's this crazy, fact-filled, genre-bending two hours of radio madness. Hey, everyone. If you like incredible music from every genre and learning interesting facts, join me, Carter Minner, next on the 3.0 radio show, where we have nothing but fine melodies and fascinating facts. And thank you for listening. It's Jonathan Young with Sporting News. The NHL season is over, but we have an official, well, 2020 official date to be announced, and that is the next season will start January 1st, 2021. The NBA season also concluded. The LA Lakers became NBA champions for this season, and their tentative start date is supposed to be mid-January for next season. The MLB playoffs in the World Series continue this Friday, tied at one game apiece with the Tampa Bay Lightning playing against the LA Dodgers. Next, this is more of a like a public announcement, I think, for an NFL fan. If you're a big NFL fan, I am just wanted to warn you that with COVID-19 happening, we're seeing positive tests happen, and then teams are getting either pushed back in their games or they're getting rescheduled. So the schedule you might see right now for your team, it doesn't mean it's set in stone. Make sure you check your team's schedules up upwards to the day of the game because these schedules, we've already seen multiple games get rescheduled because of these COVID-19 uh, testing. So just be on the lookout for that. Next, your local Denver Broncos is facing a tough opponent in the defending world champions, Kansas City Chiefs, this Sunday. Uh, it should be noted, though, that the team is also reporting to be at one of its most healthiest stages it has been this season, 
Of course, minus the big losses of Portland Sutton, Von Miller, and Jarrell Casey. But the Denver Broncos are hopeful with much of their depth back off injured reserve. Next, Mountain West football is back. It all began when the Mountain West Wire released an article stating that on September 21st, the Mountain West athletic directors would be holding a meeting. And that meeting happened, and they announced the the, uh, the Mountain West season would resume. And so now there's going to be eight games played. But just a few days ago, New Mexico, the opening game on October 24th with CSU got canceled. And it was reported that a handful of New Mexican players were tested positive for COVID-19. There's still seven games left on the schedule for the CSU Rams. And this year has been tough on all of us. And the least we can do as a, as a station is offer some consistency in this very inconsistent year, which is why I'm happy to announce that KCSU is still hosting our pregame show this Saturday with Fort Collins City Mayor Wade Truxel. And we will be awarding three lucky listeners prizes from Belgium. That's 4 p.m. this Saturday with Mayor Wade Truxel. Just because one of the games got canceled doesn't mean we can still have an enjoyable preseason show and still hear from the city mayor. Missing that deep dive into sports, well, KCSU FM has articles, pre-recorded shows, and more. And if any of that is of interest, you can find more information on kcsufm.com. That's all I have for Sporting News for KCSU Sports. I'm Jonathan Gillum, and I'll catch you next time. Now we're going to be hearing from Bill Lane, who was a photographer for the Collegian during the 1970s when Old Main burned down. Can you tell me a bit about your career as a photojournalist during college and perhaps after? I started off originally in animal husbandry and then found out I would have to take like four semesters of um, physics and soils and the rest. I decided, no, nah, I don't want to do that. So I switched to journalism. The only students that were allowed to take photography were journalism students. So when I took the class, Terry Bishotti was the head photographer and he wanted a second photographer. He hired me to be a photographer. We got paid like $2 for every photograph that we took that was used, plus ad work. And Terry hated doing ad work because we had to use a five by seven and do multiple copies and white out all the black dots and stuff. So he hated it, but I didn't mind because it left, left me lots of time in the dark room. And I would end up staying 
till two or three o'clock in the morning because I'd do all my work. We had to have everything done by like 10 o'clock. And then I would spend the rest of the time in the dark room doing my own photos. Probably the biggest <laughs> event in my photography career was when Old Main burned down. And I just had a feeling, so I took three cameras, bag with extra lenses and probably 15 or 20 rolls of film and went over to Old Main and got the first wall collapsing and then pictures of Old Main actually burning. And then the newspaper had an edition that had nothing but pictures of Old Main and all but one were mine. So for me, that I felt that was quite a coup to get that many of my pictures in the paper where Terry didn't get any as a head photographer. We had another little incident. Um, Terry's idea, and I'm, I'm not knocking Terry, but his, his idea of taking pictures was just to take one or two shots, regardless of whether they were good or not. And he did a picture of one of the sorority queens that every spring they would elect a queen for that spring. And the woman was probably 4'11", little tiny petite, blonde, blue-eyed, gorgeous little woman. And he took a picture that made her look ugly. <laughs> and at 6.30 the next morning, got a call from the uh, sorority's attorney and said that they were going to sue the newspaper because of the way this woman was portrayed in this photograph. So he called me and said, you know, you go run this young lady down and you spend all day. She gets a picture that she likes. And then the next day, we ran a five by seven on the front page of the newspaper with an apology dictated by the attorney. And it took me till, I don't know, 930 at night. And she said, I just can't make up my mind. You just pick one. It's like, no, 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 no. The attorney said, you have to pick a picture. Then we have the uh, Black Panthers. And I'm kind of just kind of jumping around. A.R. Chamberlain, who was the, the president at the time of the university. He and I were in a meeting with the Black Panthers and I've got my camera and AR's, you know, Scottish paper. And what they had demanded of AR was that he go to the Mormon, because he was a Mormon. They said, you have to go to the Mormon church and get them to let Blacks join the Mormon church. And AR's going, guys, I'm just a member of the church. I can't, you know, but. Um, All right, so since you brought up the old man fire, um, what's the most prominent memory that you have of that? It was a very horrid experience um, to see a building that was set by arson and destroyed um, this old building. I left my girlfriends and went over and took my cameras and that and shot the first wall collapsing and then threw the whole fire. Um, and it was... As, as a news photographer, it was very challenging to get different pictures. You're kind of limited to how close you can get because the firemen were keeping you, you know, like 100 yards away. So you're using a, you know, a 200 and 300 millimeter lens, you know, so you can get in close. One of the shots that we did was of the firemen in a ladder truck pumping water. Um, Several of the pictures getting the flames coming out of the roof. In the, and it had like, I, if I remember right, it was like the old red tiles, you know, on the roofs. But I got the flames coming out between the tiles. 
um, and trying to stay as close as possible, but avoiding the firemen and the police. It was a very interesting evening from the perspective of watching something burn and recording it. And then even better when we did the addition on Old Main to have all the pictures that were mine. How did you balance your identity as a student and a collegiate photographer when you were photographing and reporting on major campus events? I'm going to kind of give you an example. When I was doing pictures of the sorority queen, and then I went to the editor and said, hey, how about if I just go around and take pictures of different women and then you can pick whoever you want. And it got to a point that I couldn't get any candid shots because as soon as you showed up with your camera, there were several girls going, who's that jerk? You know, to, to the other girls sitting there going, eh, don't worry about it. He's just going to take our pictures. And who knows, you might see your picture in the newspaper tomorrow. But it got to a point that I couldn't get any candid shots. The academic, it didn't really affect my academics uh, because most of my... I had set up most of my classes preferring to have early morning classes like 8, 9, 10, and then you have the rest of the day to do whatever. I, I think I ended up with probably, my grade slipped probably my junior year, but I ended up with like a 2.7 or 2.8 final GPA. So the photography didn't really affect my grades. It gave me a lot of access to things that I never would have done or had access to if I had not been a photographer. How are members of student media treated when you were a part of Collegian? Did you were you at all socially isolated by any means? Um, not no. able to events, things like that. No, I didn't have any problem being accepted at events, and most people recognized that I would take enough time to get a good picture. I got to meet a lot of people from a lot of different lifestyles and it was just a very interesting job. How does it feel to have been heavily involved in breaking news events with the collision that became part, like important parts of CSU's history? You know, I really didn't think about it at the time because I was so involved in taking the pictures, getting them developed, getting the editor to pick them and doing the best that I could to represent whatever the event was. What were your favorite events to photograph, do you think? I'd say sports. It was hard, well, two sports that were hard. Basketball and football were really easy to take pictures of. I mean, you just, you developed a sense of timing, had a number of pictures that were published in the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. In the uh, Fort Collins, Colorado one, they had, I think, I can't remember whether we had eight. I got a lot of stuff published from sports. The Rocky Mountain News said, we need a picture of the quarterback throwing the ball and the receiver catching it. And then the referee signaling touchdown. I said, yeah, got all three of those. And it was, we had no motor drives at the time. It was just however fast you could work the shutter. Did you ever get anxious when preparing to go report on these major events? Um, I know that most journalists, especially earlier on in their careers, do get some anxiety going around with the camera and just showing up at events where people might not be totally comfortable with that. What were your feelings? I didn't have any problem with it. Like I said, with the sorority and the women and the sports, the sports and stuff were easy. And when you went to demonstrations or riots or you know, the medium with the Black Panthers or whatever. It was just a job. 
you know, you, and I just kind of looked at it as that. It's like you just went and you took the pictures, and then you went back and kind of went on. So I, I wasn't anxious about that at all. Of course, the only, the only time I was anxious was that one of the reporters was supposed to have shown up to a meeting, and all I was there to do was to take pictures. So I didn't take any notes or anything. I came back and they said, oh, the reporter didn't show up, so you need to give us uh, five inches of, you know, copy. <laughs> it's like, I don't have the foggiest clue what to tell you. I wasn't a reporter. I a journalist reporter. I was just a photographer. And if you wanted anything else, since I was just, I looked at myself just as a photographer and not as a, as a reporter. Okay. So they were very disappointed in me <laughs> with that, with that particular meeting. I just want to know if there's anything you'd like to add, things that you'd like to say about your time at the Collegian, the events you covered, anything like that. I set out to do my best to record the event so that it was represented fairly. All right, that was Bill Lane, a CSU alum who was a photographer at the Collegian. He captured a lot of photos when the Old Main fire started, and Rocky Mountain Student Media is working together to record Bill Lane's story through KCSU, the Collegian, and potentially College Avenue. We'll be right back. New Belgium Brewing is a proud supporter of Colorado State University and KCSU. Old Aggie Superior Lager is the official craft beer of Colorado State University and is a collaboration alongside CSU and New Belgium Brewing. The result is Old Aggie Superior Lager, a light lager that gives back to the university. Old Aggie is the official craft beer of Colorado State University and brewed by Ram fans. Enjoy responsibly. Residents and visitors to Northern Colorado love to get outdoors. But whether you're hiking or walking the dog, it's important to be aware of the dangers of tick bites and how to prevent them. Several tick species found in Colorado carry and transmit serious diseases. Wearing tick repellent, permethrin-treated clothing, and practicing regular tick checks on everyone, including pets, helps to prevent tick bites. The sooner a tick is detected and properly removed, the less likely the risk of disease transmission. For more information, visit coloradoticks.org. This PSA is brought to you by the Colorado Tick-Borne Disease Awareness Association and 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. Now it's time for some national news highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is your national news highlights for October 22nd. According to Matt Katkov at NPR, the parents of 445 children who are separated at the southern U.S. border have still not been located. Despite this aspect of the Trump administration's no-tolerance migration policy being overturned by a federal judge with the help of the ACLU, families separated in 2019 have not all been reunited due to the time between the judge's new order and the beginning of separations. It's estimated that two-thirds of parents who've had their children separated from them have re returned to their home countries. And due to COVID-19 restrictions, efforts to reconnect these families have been limited. According to Mike Isaac at the New York Times, TikTok has announced a new policy, some new policy changes 
to crack down on hate speech, including what they call, quote, coded language. That could, that could work to normalize hate speech on the platform. In a blog post, TikTok said that, quote, these guidelines reflect our values and they make clear that hateful ideologies are incompatible with the inclusive and supportive community that our platform provides, end quote. This week, they also announced that they were banning posts and users related to the QAnon conspiracy theory, and they've continuously banned direct references to Nazism and other forms of white supremacy. According to Philip Ewing at NPR, the U.S. is blaming Iran for threatening emails sent to voters in the U.S. states of Alaska and Florida. Officials are concerned that Russian interference may also be an issue. The senders of the threatening emails posed as individuals associated with the white supremacist group, the Proud Boys. The emails said that if voters did not vote for current President Donald Trump, and they could face consequences. They claimed to have voter data that would, that would reveal who targeted citizens voted for in past elections, but U.S. officials have stated that this was a false flag. John Ratcliffe, the director of national intelligence, believes that Iranian and Russian operatives obtained voter record information, which may have allowed for certain email addresses to be targeted. And that's all for today's national news highlights. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. We'll be right back with COVID-19 updates. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Koda Babcock, and this is COVID-19 updates for October 22nd. Colorado State University has over 600 COVID-19 cases among students, faculty, and staff of the university. There's been an overall downward trend in the past month in cases for the university, but community members still need to stay alert. Larimer County's risk score has remained in the medium risk category, so community members need to stay alert and continue practicing safe safety measures. There have been 71 new cases in the past 24 hours, and every day in the past two weeks has seen over 15 new cases per day. 25 COVID-19 patients are in the hospital, and hospital usage is at 68%. ICU usage is at 78%. And Colorado has around 89,000 cases statewide, with over 2,000 deaths among those cases. There have been an, a thousand, over 1,000 outbreaks across the state. Nationwide, there are over 8.3 million COVID-19 cases, which have increased by 36% over the past two weeks. Deaths are at over 220,000 cases, with an or, with 220,000 deaths, with an increase of 7% in the past two weeks. The U.S. is seeing an overall spike in new cases in the past month. Information for today's segment was gathered from CSU's COVID site, Larimer County, Colorado P Department of Public Health and Environment, and the New York Times. For access to, a si to symptom and faculty-specific resources, you can visit covid.colostate.edu. For access to a symptom checker and other non-CSU-specific resources, you can visit cdc.gov coronavirus. I'm Koda Babcock, and that's all for our COVID-19 update. Now for weird news. Hello, everyone. Again, I am Ivy Winfrey. Um, and sometimes we just need to get a little weird with it. So, so here's some of the weirdest stories from around the world. According to Courtney Shaw at ABC News Cleveland, a priest told ABC News that someone called the police to report a homeless person sleeping on the premises of St. Barnabas Episcopal Church. The issue? The reported homeless person was actually a statue of Jesus Christ. The bronze sculpture, created by Timothy Schmalz, entitled Homeless Jesus, depicts a man wrapped in a blanket and lying on a bench. The sculpture was a temporary installment on the premises of the St. Barnabas Episcopal Church. 
According to the church's website, because Bay Village isn't impacted much by property uh, poverty, the state a statue is meant to remind residents how serious homelessness in the homelessness is in the world. According to Alex Martin, the pastor at St. Barnabas, within 20 minutes of the sculpture being installed, the police were called. Martin said that he is hopeful that the person who called the police did so, hoping they would be able to provide resources to the person the caller believed to be on the bench, resonating with the sta uh, statue's core values of justice, love, and standing with the outcast and marginalized. Martin said, quote, I would very much want to give the caller the benefit of the doubt and assume that they were calling out a place of love and compassion for con and concern for a fellow human being, end quote. According to Becky Fiera, Advice News, a virtual paleontology conference has run into trouble after the profanity filter for the conference's chat room blocked the use of common words such as bone that were deemed inappropriate. For those in unfamiliar with the subject, paleontology is the study of fossilized animals and plants and is heavily invested in the research of fossilized bones and skeletons. The Society of Vertebrate pa Paleontology is... Uh, is holding its conference online this week because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Participants in some of the meeting's early, uh, early question and answer sessions noticed their comments were being censored by the profanity filter even though they were using common terms in paleontology, such as sexual and hell at, when describing Hell Creek, which is the name of a famous fossil formation, Montana. Stephanie Drumheller, a paleontologist at the University of Tennessee, explained in a Reddit post that the virtual meeting platform provided by Convey Services came with a prepackaged naughty word filter. The meeting's organizers had to manually approve individual words so they would not get filtered, leading the participants creating a spreadsheet of terms that were blocked. Among the blocked words were many terms used heavily by paleontologists. As one attendee commented on Reddit, words like bone, pubic, and stream are frankly ridiculous to ban in a field where we regularly find pubic bones and streams, end quote. Emily Rayfield, the outgoing president of the SVP and, the, and a paleobiologist at the University of Bristol, said in an email to Vice Magazine, quote, As soon as we were alerted to this, we took steps to correct it. We contacted the virtual platform provider and they rectified the situation promptly, as you can see from the updated spreadsheet. According to Laurel Wamsley at National Public Radio, the town of Asbestos, Quebec, has selected a new name. Going forward, the town will be known as Val de Sources, the Valley of the Springs, rather than the name of the carcinogenic mineral mined in the town until 2011. The town, about 80 miles east of Montreal, has watched it as its namesake transformed from being an asset in the late 1800s to a liability in recent decades. The area was home to Jeffrey Mine, once the largest cryostyle asbestos mine in the world, the CBC reports, and the town grew up around it. According to historian Jessica Van Horsen, the town got its name when the Royal Mail simply started calling it after the mineral. Asbestos is naturally occurring and was once widely used for insulation, but the fibers can be toxic if inhaled, increasing the risk of lung disease. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has banned certain uses of asbestos since 1973. Abandoned asbestos-containing products went into effect in Canada in 2018. Luis Moisan Colomb, the town's former uh, mayor, told the CBC, quote, once upon a time, we have been a very proud of that name, but now it's very difficult because asbestos means a fiber that people are afraid of. Every time you say, especially in the United States, that you are coming from asbestos, or they read asbestos on a package, they are always afraid that it will be poison, end quote. 
In a drive-in vote held in recent days in, the, in a local parking lot, the town selected a new future. Residents aged 14 and older could participate, and nearly 2,800 townspeople cast a vote for the new name, almost half of those who were eligible. And it was thus decided asbestos will become Valdez Sources, which captured 51.5% of the vote. The name is slated to change officially in December. And that's all the weird news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. We'll be right back. Sir Nicholas, did you catch the results from last week's joust? No, but I read the recap online, and a Sir Jonathan won the joust. Huzzah! KCSU Sports always has, and always will, bring you sports. And now for the weather. Today in Fort Collins, we're experiencing some pretty cold weather with a high of 47 and a low of 19 and a 20% chance of precipitation with winds reaching 15 miles per hour. Friday, it'll cool down a bit more with a predicted high of 35 and a low of 25 with winds slowing back down to 9 miles per hour. This Saturday, it'll warm up just a bit to almost 60 degrees for the high with a low of 16, once again with a 20% chance of precipitation and around 10 mile per hour wind speeds. On Sunday, you can expect some snow with a 60% chance of precipitation and the same wind speeds as Saturday. The temperature will be peaking at 19 degrees with a low of just 7. Monday will be about the same, although the chance of snow will be reducing back down to 20%. Tuesday, we can expect clouds to head out and for things to warm back up with a high of 39 degrees and a low of 25. This whole weekend, you can expect clouds and high humidity. For Wednesday's weather, you'll have to tune in this Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. on KCSU for the Rocky Mountain Review, hosted by myself and Ivy Winfrey. Information for today's segment comes to the Weather Channel. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank Thomas Taylor, Asher Korn, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Griffin Ham, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the, West, the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain State Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.